Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 10. As my nephew said last week, as I began the book in chapter 2, everybody begins a book in chapter 2, right, Uncle Jeff? Former nephew. Jerk. I realize I'm up against the uh, gun that uh, the Super Bowl of football is uh, beginning in 28 minutes. So that means absolutely nothing to me, just so you know. No, no. I, uh, I love football. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your inspired and errant word. We ask, Father, that you would take what you have written, guided Paul to write, and impart it to our hearts, that we may be transformed, that we might be changed, that your truth, your gospel, your words will be used by your spirit to transform us into the image and the likeness of your son. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. It was many years ago, I was pastoring a church in Pennsylvania, and the McLaughlins, they're a missionary family in East Africa, they contacted the church, and they asked if the church would send me to East Africa for two purposes. The first purpose was because they were having challenges. They weren't struggling in their marriage. Their marriage was very intact. They weren't struggling with their four sons, their young sons. These four young sons love the Lord and still love the Lord to this day. They weren't struggling with their call to ministry. They knew that solidly. They were struggling with the fact that they lived in northern East Africa They lived in a village of 7,000, almost all of whom were Ethiopian Orthodox or Muslim, with less than 100 Christ followers. They were 100 miles from the nearest other Westerners in their country. There were no hospitals. There was no hot running water. The water was not safe. There was drought and famine all around them. There were no public schools. It was dangerous where they lived. They needed to have their house walled with an armed guard in order to be sure that they would wake up alive the next morning. That's what they were struggling with. And so it was my joy to spend time with them and and talk with them and counsel with them. And in spite of all of my incredible inadequacies, I count it among the greatest joys of my life that they are still in that village of 7,000 and that church is no longer of a hundred, but multiple hundreds as many have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The second reason I was there was to train a number of pastors who had chosen the life of living in northern Ethiopia and in northern and eastern Africa. Now, southern Ethiopia is very evangelized, probably quite a bit more evangelized than our country. 
but northern Ethiopia is not. And those countries like Somalia and Eritrea and Sudan, which is now two countries, hardly evangelized. And that was the area to which these pastors were ministering. And I remember getting there. I'm already suffering from jet lag, and I spent a number of days doing some counseling, and now I have four days to spend with these pastors, and they were long days. At a minimum, they were 18 hours. Sometimes they were 20 hours. These pastors had never had anyone to ask biblical or theological questions. Some of them had questions written down for several decades. And so they would get me up very early in the morning, and they were like Velcro, and they would ask question after question, and it was a joy to be with them. But it's in the little bit of embarrassment that I tell you that on the fourth day, in the middle of one of my lectures, I fell asleep. You say, no big deal. I fall asleep all the time when you preach, Jeff. That's fine. <laughs> you falling asleep when I preach is different than me falling asleep when I preach. That's just a little heightened embarrassment. And they let me sleep for what I assumed to be about 10 minutes, then shook me awake, and on we went. And I consider these individuals to be giants of the faith. Not one pastor, as I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was with, not one pastor had not had a child, spouse, or parent that had not been martyred for the faith. All of them were directly connected to Christ's followers who lost their lives because they believed in Jesus. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that on that Sunday morning when I was preaching, I was in a corrugated steel building. They stoned the building. Well, I didn't tell you the rest of the story. They stoned the building from all sides, and I'm thinking to myself, I've got to end this sermon soon. And we need to think of a way how to surreptitiously slip out so nothing worse happens. And so I managed to finish up the sermon and they said, will you preach another one? I'm thinking, how do we get out of here? And they're thinking, we need more of the word of God. They are giants in the faith. I know more about the Bible than they do. But I'm a pygmy, and they are giants in the faith. They understood what Paul were right in verse 3 where he says that a working faith results in good works. A working faith results in love that is love vertically and love horizontally. And a working faith results in steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst of affliction. Let's pick up in our text and read what God led Paul to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then we unpack those three in verses 4 to 10. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. As I did last week, let me just give us a summary, a thumbnail sketch of what we ought to understand about the introduction to the book of 1 Thessalonians. The year is around AD 50. Paul is on the second of three major missionary journeys. Paul is winning people to a saving faith. The book of Acts in chapters 17 and 18, they give us a fair amount of the details. You remember that Paul is up in northern Macedonia, Hellenistic country. He is on the border of Greece and uh, Turkey. He's in Philippi. It is there that God moved mightily. And when God moved mightily, people came to know Christ as Savior. And we know that the Philippian jailer and his whole family came to Christ. We know that Lydia and her household came to Christ. But we also know from chapter 2 as well as Acts, that Paul faced terrible persecution. He had to flee under the cover of darkness. And so he flees from northern Greece, and he heads south and a little bit west. He goes down around the Aegean Sea. He goes 50 miles down to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a world-class city. It's about a quarter million people. It's a city on the east-west road called the Via Ignatia, which is the road that Roman soldiers traveled east and west between Europe and Asia. And here he plants a church. And you remember that he's there for all of three weeks, 21 days, when he has to flee in order to preserve his life. He needs to flee again because these people are persecuting him. And yet Acts 17 verse 4 tells us that many in the church area came to Christ and a budding church emerges. So Paul will then send Timothy back there to pastor for a while. And Paul will also send some letters, two of which God has preserved in the canon of Scripture. These two letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, are among the earliest letters we have in the New Testament corpus. The earliest three letters we have are James, Mark, and Galatians. Those are from about AD 45 to 47 or 48. The next earliest is Matthew, which is around AD 50. And then the two after that are 1st Thessalonians and 2nd Thessalonians, somewhere around AD 51 or AD 52.
to. And Paul begins this letter by telling us three things that were true. They were marks of the church at Thessalonica. The first is that they had a faith that resulted in works. They had a faith that was lived out by the fruit of God's Spirit working in and through them to reach a world that is lost. The second thing is that faith resulted in love. Love vertically for the Lord and horizontally for a man. And third, they had a faith that resulted in steadfast hope in the midst of affliction, the midst of the walls caving in on them because of their steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to unflesh that for us in verses 4 to 10. Now before we go on and look at those three characteristics, I want us to consider what doesn't make the list. What doesn't make the list for a church is a huge auditorium and lots of people. It's not on the list. Great programming, it doesn't make the list. High technology, it doesn't make the list. Those things may be good. They may be used by God for his glory and his purposes, but they don't make the list. For Christ followers, what doesn't make the list? A great academic pedigree, or being a mover or shaker in society, or even driving the right vehicle, which for me would be something that looks like this beautiful Jeep up here, uh, if it ever gets there. It doesn't make the list. It should make the list, but it doesn't. What makes the list is a labor of working out one's faith, loving through one's faith, and because of one's faith, steadfastness in the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's unpack each of them. The first is, Paul says, your work of faith. And let's be honest. Sometimes we're a bit nervous when we see the word work next to the word faith. We're a bit nervous about that because, you know, we don't want anyone to be confused. We don't want to be confused to believe that in any way we help what Christ has done on the cross, that Christ's sacrifice was not totally sufficient. So Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and, and that plus our good works will lead to heaven. Absolutely not. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, think with me what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2.16. Some of you remember this. Galatians 2.16, when I was preaching through the book of Galatians, I had a terrible idea. I said, why don't we as a church memorize Galatians 2.16? It is the most difficult verse in the New Testament to memorize. And so I'm going to read it to you this morning. Yet we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul fully embraces that salvation is by faith in the finished work of Christ. It's not Christ plus. It's Christ only. Christus, solus Christus, Christ alone. It is faith 
in Christ alone, and we believe in his completed work, and we accept his death, burial, and resurrection alone as a payment of our confessed sin, and because of Christ, we are saved. However, Paul also wants us to understand that we, while we are never saved by good works, we are saved to good works. Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says? Often we just read 8 and 9, for by grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so none of us can boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why are we created in Christ Jesus? For good works, which God has created for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are never saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. And the church at Thessalonica understood that. They saw that they were saved to something, to good works. And the good work that is mentioned is turning from idolatry. Let me read verse 9 again. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Picture the scene. You're halfway down Greece. You're on a port city, Thessalonica. It's a very clear day, and if you stand on Thessalonica near the beach and you look south on a very clear day, you can see what appears to be a mountain rising up out of the sea. Of course, it's not. It's part of the land, but that mountain is Mount Olympus. That's the supposed home of the 12 gods and goddesses that are part of the Greek pantheon. And I remember, I told you a few weeks ago, I went with some fathers and sons on a shoestring budget to Greece. Again, I told you they're never going to let me pick the hotels. Big deal if we weren't the only things living in each room. Big <laughs> deal. Not that big a deal, but they thought it was. So we're there, and we had gone to ancient Corinth, and we were really the only people in ancient Corinth, and incredible ruins, just incredible. And we were up on a roof, literally overlooking ancient Corinth, having lunch, and someone said, and I knew this was going to happen, they said, we've gone to a lumber of temples of false gods. Jeff, will you just give us a thumbnail sketch of religious life in the first century in Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, everywhere in Greece. And I'll be honest, I got a C minus, maybe a D plus. It really wasn't very good. And then I had this, this idea, I don't know what came over me, but I turned to my son, I had not warned him, he had no notes, he had no preparation. I said, Isaiah, do you have anything to add? And for the next 30 minutes, with precision, my son gave us an unbelievable lecture on first century religious life in ancient Corinth. And it was, it was magnificent. And what he talked to us about was exactly what they lived out in Thessalonica. Seeing Mount Olympus, the home of the false gods of Hades or Poseidon or Artemis or Zeus, or Ares, and on and on and on. 
That was the life in the first century Hellenistic or Greek world. And when these individuals came to Christ, although it was socially unacceptable, politically unacceptable, economically unacceptable, because many of your trades were also taught or tied to false worship, these individuals turned from idolatry to the one true God. Now we might say, and rightly so, that's impressive, that's great. But we might add some thought like this, that's great, but that has little bearing on the 21st century American life. And if we thought that, and I trust you wouldn't, but if we thought that, I think we would think incorrectly. Idolatry is more than bowing down to icons or statues or being part of mythology and worshiping mythological gods made with human hands. It's more than that. Idolatry is anything that is more important in our lives than our Trinitarian God. Idolatry can be a spouse or the desire for one. Idolatry can be a child or a grandchild. Idolatry can be a job. It can be a bank account. It can be a recreation. It could be an athletic pursuit. It can be an artistic pursuit. Idolatry can be our desire for influence or power or beauty or recognition. Idolatry is anything in our lives that we consider to be more important to us than God. Idolatry can be Lambeau Field and the Green Bay Packers. All right, I've stopped preaching and started meddling. Idolatry can be Soldier Field. Now that really would be stupid. <laughs> Idolatry can be anything that I consider more important in my life than God. And these individuals came to Christ and they turned away from what was cultural, political, and economic truth. But it really was a lie. They turned from idolatry to the one true God. And I wonder if there's something in my life, something in your life, that we need to give up, that we need to turn from something or some things that are more important to us than our relationship with the living God? If so, that's idolatry and we need to confess it as sin and ask God to cleanse us and to turn from it and turn back to the living God. That's the first thing these individuals did. The second thing they did with their living faith is they began to have a great love relationship first vertically with God and then horizontally with man, they began to love people the way people need to be loved. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. He said, the first and the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened unto the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. All and the law and the prophets hang on these two. In other words, Jesus said, do you want a summation of the entire Old Testament? Love God preeminently and love man secondarily. And that's what these individuals began to do. Do you know what the world does not need? The world does not need one more angry church. The world does not need one more self-righteous Christ follower. The world does not need that. We've got enough of that. What the world needs is people 
who love individuals enough to introduce them to Christ and to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Two of the most moving passages for me in Scripture are Luke 15 and Luke 7. In Luke 15, it says that Jesus had a reputation as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in chapter 7, I think it's verse 51, he had a reputation as a glutton and a drunkard and a reputation of hanging around tax collectors and sinners. That's guilt by association. What that means is this. Jesus was not a glutton. He was not a drunkard. But he hung around people that were. Not to say, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay. But to say, in this very un-okay world, and in this very un-okay behavior, I'm going to love you. But I'm not going to love you to leave you where you are. I'm going to love you to take incremental steps to where I am. And that's what the world needs. The world needs churches and Christ followers who help people to take the next step in their relationship with Jesus Christ, to love people where they are, but to never want to leave people where they are, to call people to imitate us as we imitate Christ. You remember that phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, imitate us or imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what's going on here. Paul and Silas or Silvanus and, and Timothy came and they saw some individuals who needed the gospel. Some accepted Christ and Paul said, imitate us as we imitate Christ. And then these new Christians began to love the world that they were a part of and they began to say, imitate us as we imitate Christ. We're always looking for someone further along in the maturity of Christ. And as they imitate Christ, we want to imitate them. And then we're always looking for someone a little bit less mature than us to bring them along that they might imitate us as we imitate Christ. Frankly, this shouldn't be very difficult for us because we are a world of imitation. I remember growing up and hearing the phrase, be like Mike, be like Mike, Mike Jordan, Michael Jordan. All right, another country. I don't remember which one that was in. <laughs> be like Mike. We're all about imitation. We see somebody's haircut and we take the picture to our beautician and we say, do that to this. We're all about imitation. Or we see what somebody is dressing or what they're driving and we say, we want to be like that. Now, I agree that I'm a happening type of guy, but... The swank that you see here, it's just an imitation of Pastor Jared. I want to be like Pastor Jared. We're all about imitation. And it's a biblical concept as long as we're saying to people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we're looking for someone who is further along in their walk, and we seek to imitate them as they imitate Christ. So these people had a faith that resulted in works. They had a faith that resulted in love. And they had a faith that resulted in steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of affliction. Think of the affliction they faced. Paul was up in Philippi and he tells us in chapter 2 that we were poorly treated. 
That's an understatement. Under the cover of night, he had to flee for his life or he would have been a martyr of the faith 16 years before he was a martyr of the faith. And then he comes down to Thessalonica and he's there for three weeks and then he needs to flee. And then some of the Thessalonians, they follow him into other parts of the world to persecute him. Paul knows what it means to have steadfast hope in the midst of affliction. That word flipsis, it means to, to have all sides hemming you in. It means to make things difficult. We don't know a lot about that in this country, just a little bit, and it's growing. It's unlikely in the 21st century that we will have the affliction that Paul endured. It's unlikely that we will have the affliction of those East African pastors, all of whom had a direct family member who had been martyred for their faith. But the affliction is growing. We live in a culture in which righteousness is now called unrighteousness. Morality is called immorality. Truth is called a lie. We live in a society where academia and the media and some political circles are, are getting tougher and tougher on Christ's followers. And we could have an attitude that says, man, I don't know what's going on. God, what are you doing? Or we could look at Scripture and say, man, what grace that for 250 years we have had freedoms that very few in history have ever enjoyed. And in fact, Jesus tells us that the closer we get to his return... The more that flips is the more that affliction is going to rise. Let me just read three passages to us. Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Don't miss those last words. We'll be hated by all, not because we're jerks, but because we're following Christ. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first before it hated you. If we are being hated by the world, it's because we are now imitators of Christ. And as we imitate Christ, more and more the world will reject us. Luke 6, Blessed are you when people hate you, they exclude you, revile you, and spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Because of our relationship with the living God, people might revile us. They might exclude us. That's okay. Jesus told us that it would be that way. And so as we begin the study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, new Christ followers, there's three things that we want to imitate in their life. They had a faith in Christ that resulted in good works. They had a faith in Christ that resulted in greater love for God and love for man. And they had a faith in Christ that, that resulted in steadfast hope in the midst of affliction because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as they walked with Christ, we want to imitate that walk. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the Christians in Thessalonica and the model that they have given to us and the way that they lived out their faith, may we live out our faith in a corresponding way for your glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.